Father God, in Jesus' name, Lord, we uh, I just thank you for the, this group in this room right now, Lord, because they're committed to you, and they're committed to this book that they find you in. And Lord, it's, it's just not words on a page. It's the very thing that connects us relationally to you. Lord, this book has done more to improve this world than any piece of writing that has ever been written. And so we look for you in it, Lord, that we would be different, we would be changed. So have your way with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so um, I was actually just speaking with Connie, and um, whatever we were talking about, I, I just threw out a verse to her, and I go, that's the verse. It's actually perfect for tonight. And so um, I ran and I wrote it down, and here's the perfect verse for tonight. Is gives you an idea of the centrality of this word, the um, importance of this word. If you remember, Jesus is teaching about the rich man and Lazarus, and as they go to uh, Sheol, um, Lazarus to Abraham's bosom and, and the rich man to the place of torment, um, after negotiating for a better deal, uh, the rich man finally settles on, will you at least go tell my brothers about this awful place so they won't come here? And here's what Jesus said. They have Moses and the prophets. If they don't listen to them, they won't believe even if somebody rose from the dead. Do you hear the power of Jesus just said about the scripture? This is what brings faith. This is what brings belief. More than an eyewitness account of a resurrection from the dead, he says. Says if they don't believe this, they're not going to believe even if somebody rose from the dead. This is God's chosen vessel for reaching humankind for their eternal benefit. So, um, when we talk about studying the Bible, I'm going to give you a couple big words so you sound smart at parties, and then we'll um, go from there. Um, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics are the general principles that we follow for studying Scripture. General principles that we follow for interpreting scripture are called hermeneutics. And a more detailed part of hermeneutics is what we call exegesis. And it's not J-E-S-U-S, -S, Jesus. This is X-E-E-G-E-S-I-S, -E -E exegesis. The word X you see on the exit signs and so forth, that's the word for out of. It's, it's what we take out of the text. And that's opposed to the very wrong style of interpreting the Bible called eisegesis, which is you putting your thoughts into the text. Okay, uh, The Bible is not so much a here's what this means to me book. It's more of a thus saith the Lord, the things you need to know the heart of God through, uh, that, that, that type of book. So exegesis is how we want to approach the text, pulling out of the text, the author's intent. Opposed to eisegesis, which is you saying what you think that it means. Um, we live in a, in a time where colleges are teaching that meaning comes from the, the reader, not the author. Meaning comes from the, from the uh, reader, not from the author. That you indeed put your meaning on the text. That's being taught in the universities now which is very, very scary, because they are going to grow up saying, this is what it means to me, that may mean that to you, but it doesn't mean that to me, and you get all this relativism seeping in. Okay, So exegesis is very, very important interpretive um, technique for studying the Bible. Now, good exegesis requires us to learn how to read the text carefully and to ask the right questions. Attention must be given both to the immediate passage as well as to the bigger picture of the chapter, then the bigger picture of the book, the bigger picture of which testament you're in, and then, of course, as the Bible as a whole. So you want to just keep unpacking your passage. You, you know, what, I always hesitate as, as somebody who leads a Bible department from K to 12. I always hesitate about what people think. This is what should be happening in your Bible department. You should be memorizing verses. And the reason why people are growing up so biblically illiterate is because they just take a verse and they go, okay, now this verse i got to apply to my life this way. But they have no context. They don't understand the setting. They don't understand the meaning behind what's going on 
And when you when when you talk about God's purpose and will and his intent and what he does through circumstances in our lives, the single verse very often isn't going to cut it for us. We've got to know what's going on. So you, if, you're, if you're looking at a verse, you've got to look at the paragraph that it's in. If you're looking at a paragraph, you've got to look at the chapter that it's in. If you're looking at that chapter, you've got to look at the book that it's in. If you're looking at a book, you've got to know which testament you're in. If you're looking at that testament, you've got to know I'm in the meta-narrative of the Bible. God's one unified message from him to mankind. All of that fits in together. And none of it will contradict it, its other parts. Okay? Uh, you take just a verse and memorize it, you have no idea if you're fitting the context. You've got to get the bigger picture of these things. So I'll give you an example of that in just a few moments. N.T. Wright, wonderful biblical scholar, he said this, We take account of the nature of each book, each chapter, each syllable. Context meanings, with, meanings within particular cultures, the overall place of a book, its theme, aligned within the culture and time, and within the scope and sweep of Scripture itself. All these things matter. Exploring them with the rigor and attention they deserve constitutes a massive task, although they are, there are today all kinds of encouragements and helps in undertaking it. In other words, it's a huge task to fully understand Scripture, but we live in a day and age where it's never been easier. It's never been more accessible to more people. There's all sorts of Bible software. We have a resident sort of expert back there in Paul who could, uh, yeah, tell you all sorts of ways uh, of, of, of helping uh, Bible software can help us out with this. But um, when we talk, of, when N.T. Wright mentions the scope and the sweep of Scripture itself, um, probably one of the most important things I ever learned in seminary was simply not getting this close to the Bible, memorizing verses and figuring out how to apply to my life, but backing up from it and seeing it within the Genesis to Revelation context. And you start making all sorts of connections. All sorts of connections come to life. For example, let me go as early and as late in the Bible as I can to show you that it's telling one story. It's like God took this deep breath in Genesis 1, told his redemptive story of humankind, and by the time he got done with that breath, it was Revelation 22. Okay, He's telling one story. Uh, Genesis 1, we start with darkness and deep, correct? The world is uninhabitable. It's dark and it's deep and there's no life. God will have to start creating life and land, or light and land to overcome darkness and deep so that he can have life here. But in the condition of darkness and deep, there is no life. How does Revelation end? Beautiful picture of New Jerusalem where we're going to spend eternity. And it just so happens to finish in chapter 21 by saying, there is no night in heaven. The darkness has been overcome completely. And there is no sea. The deep has been overcome completely. So you think it's a coincidence that the only time there's no life in the Bible is described as darkness and deep. And when, we're, when we have an eternal dwelling where death does not exist anymore, it bothers to tell you there's no night and there is no sea. So therefore, the darkness and deep have been overcome and in, in, in throughout scripture. So it's all telling one story. Uh, very, very important to see that. Now, um, I'm going to give you some steps that I think faithfully followed will improve your time in the Word of God. Step number one. Commit to reading the Bible and studying it. How's that for a first step? Okay, read the thing. Okay, commit to reading it. When I say commit to me reading it, I mean look at your day and then say, you know what? If you, if you say I can't fit Bible reading into my day, you have no idea how busy I am, I bet you your alarm clock will go back another 30 to 60 minutes and wake you up earlier and you can do it then. Okay, so... I would use somebody else as an example, except for I don't know anybody else's study schedule, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I do. Okay, I start getting work ready for work at 6.30 in the morning, but I get up at 5 in the morning. That's 90 minutes that I have, and I read the Bible in a year. So, so I have whatever passage that day is. There's an Old Testament passage. There's a New Testament passage. There's a Psalm and a Proverb. And if you follow that plan, in a year you've read every word of the Bible, and I've been doing that for 10, 12, 13 years so that way I know I'm touching base with every single syllable of scripture in a given year. 
that takes about 15 minutes to sit down and read uh, that day's worth of, of reading when you read the Bible in a year. So after I'm done with that, I take one certain book of the Bible and I pay deeper attention to that book of the Bible. I'll have, I'll have that book of the Bible with a commentary on that book of the Bible uh, with uh, my, my software, Logos software I have to look up different words and, and uh, get different comments on different parts of the scripture. But I do a deep dive into that, sometimes just a verse or two, sometimes just a paragraph, something until I'm like, you know what, that's what I want to be thinking about the rest of today. This is the thing that I want constantly coming up in my mind throughout the day. And it's amazing how much God will show you on that on that thing. So I do a broad sweep, Bible in a year, make sure I read every syllable every year. And then I do a deep dive into something in particular and, um, and really try to see, to really try to ask God if he'll make that passage come to life for me that day. That I can see the relevance of that passage in my day type of thing. So um, that with prayer. Prayer is very, very important in reading the Bible. Um, there's MIT graduates, Harvard graduates, Yale graduates that will never understand what it, literally a 15-year-old can understand when reading the scripture. If the 15-year-old has eyes to see and ears to hear and the Harvard grad does not, then the 15-year-old will rightly interpret the scripture and the Harvard grad will have no idea what it's saying. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 if you want. It'll tell you there that scripture is divinely designed to hit the heart of the believer, and yet the unbeliever has a veil over their eyes that can only be removed in Christ. They will not understand uh, what can be understood because God is speaking to the heart. If Christianity were an IQ test, then the Harvard grad would have a huge advantage, correct? But he has no advantage whatsoever because Christianity is a heart test, and the heart of a 15-year-old can certainly be pure and more willing to receive in humble submission than a Harvard grad might be. So commit to reading the Bible and study it. We are called people of the book, yet too few Christians commit to themselves to really learn it. Don't just leave this to pastors or Christian authors for you to know what's in the Bible. Can you imagine if, if we left recreation just to professional athletes and nobody went out into a local basketball court and played? We go, oh, I just watched the heat play instead. Okay, we can't let other people do this for us. We've got to be in the word personally uh, ourselves. Always open with prayer. Uh, Psalm, Psalm 119 verse 18, David said this, and I think this is an awesome verse to start your study time with. Open my eyes, Lord, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. There's wondrous things in there, okay? Um, Psalm 119, verse 18. It's a great way to start your Bible reading, okay? So commit yourself, okay? Make your, make, make your, I love doing it first thing in the morning. My students love doing it before bed. Um, I like doing it in the morning because I like knowing this is in me before I do anything else during the day, okay? So, so, um, now, so, so step one is what? Commit to reading it, commit to studying it, okay? It's hard to believe there'll ever be a human being goes, I committed myself to studying the word, and man, what a waste of my time that has been. It just doesn't go together, okay? It just doesn't go together. All right, step two, read the Bible in its context. I don't know if I'll say a more important thing tonight. Read the Bible in its context. Taking scripture out of context is exactly where heresy comes from. Now, I'm going to step on a few toes here, but it just makes it more fun here. So, um, How many of you, your life versus Jeremiah 29.11? You're not going to say it now after what I just said. Right? <laughs> 28.11, yeah, that's not, no. 29.11, listen. Here's, what's it say? For I know the plans that I have, I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me and I will listen to you. You're like, how could he mess this up right now? How can he say, okay, listen, all of that's true. It's just that's not the verse to get those truths from because what's the context of this? Well, let's back up a verse and read a little further. 
says, For thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word, good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you'll call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me when you search me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. Starting to lose a little relevance. Uh, I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. I'll bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. Okay, this is for the Israelites when Nebuchadnezzar took them captive in Babylon for 70 years. And he said, I want you to plant gardens there. I want you to live and work and raise families. I want you to live as normal in captivity in Babylon because I know the plans that I have for you. And I will prosper you and I, I will do this and that for you. So now can you get the very truths of 2911 from other parts of the Bible and make it relevant to you? Yes, of course. Okay, it's just that 2911 in context, it's 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 like Philippians four thirteen. What does that say? Now listen, I about 10, 12, 13 years ago, I made a bit of a fuss at CCA saying that that verse of all verses should not be on athletic shirts. I think it's terrible that you could you that an athlete would say, Okay, I can do all things through Christ who strikes me. Then you go play another Christian school and they're saying the same thing, and now what are you gonna do? Right? <laughs> Everybody's going to be slammed up on the basketball and nobody's going to lose, right? So listen, Paul in context is saying how much suffering he had to go through for this gospel. Prisonments, beatings, all these things. And, and, and he's trying to encourage us that when we suffer, we can endure through the strength that Christ gives us. Why? Because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. To put that on an athletic shirt is to take everything all the meaning right out of it and just say, we, we just want to win and I want to encourage you and you can run faster than the next guy because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. No, no, okay? That, that's, that's when you're standing up for the gospel and getting beat down for it. Then you, then you, then you put that person in the context, okay? So we're, we're watering things down. Um, here's... I, I'm sure there's a half a dozen in you right now saying, he's going to go to Matthew 18 with this one. Yes, I am. I'm going to Matthew 18 with this one. Okay, it's kind of a campaign to get people to stop doing this. So, okay, this might step on some more toes, but how many of you have either prayed this way or heard people pray and they'll say, hey, there's two or three gathered in his name, so the Lord's here, so let's thank him. Meanwhile, you got a poor widow in the, in the, in the audience going, man, when I go home, all by myself and I'm so lonely and I thought the Lord was with me. I guess he I guess he's not. Right? I don't have two or three with me. So so which is it? Do you need two or three with you? Or do, are you supposed to go into your prayer closet by yourself and, and fellowship with the Lord? Okay? So what is the context? Well it's Matthew eighteen and uh start in verse fifteen. Um this is how we deal with a sinning brother says, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you gained your brother. But if you will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. That's the context. Okay? The context is bring witnesses with you, two or three. Why? Because the book of Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 15 says, if you have two or three witnesses, then all matters are established. And don't bring up a matter without those witnesses because... God is protecting you from just slander. Somebody just walking up and go, he did that, and, and now you should punish him for what he did, and yet no, nobody's there to back it up. God's protecting you from that. It says, so it'll be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. If he refuses even to hear the church, let him to be like a heathen, a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, that if two or you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. Why? Because where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Okay? This is a, a uh, judgment verse. This is a verse of how do you know when your brother's in sin, how do you know if he's denying it? If he's denying it and you know he's in sin, how do you know what heaven's judgment on him is? How can we know what heaven will do? 
Well, Jesus says, confront them. If you win them, there you got them. Bring, if not, bring two or three. There's your witnesses to it all. If, if they don't listen to them, bring it to the church. They don't listen to the church. Then treat them like a tax collector or a sinner. Why? He says, because whatever you therefore bind on earth, he's saying, hey, I'm binding you to your sin because you have not admitted it. You've not confessed it. Now you're bound to your sin. The, the Greek verbiage here is that whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. In other words, you'll find yourself in agreement with heaven on them if you do this principle. That's why the principle is so important. You do the principle, you'll be found to be in agreement with heaven. If you if you uh, lose him on earth by the principle, then he'll have already been loosed in heaven. Heaven knows, right? Heaven knows if he's guilty or innocent. But how do we know? It says do the principle. And then when you get to that conclusion, you'll know heaven's already done that with him. Okay? So by far, it's just not a, hey, two or three are getting. Lord, we thank you. Two or three are here. You're here in our midst. Okay? Now I'm getting pet peeves running through my head, and it's not fair to you because it's a vent. But um, um, I'm going to do one because I'll feel better. I don't know. <laughs> but um, I don't know. This is going to be just me, and you're going to talk about me on the drive home for this one. It's okay. I'm not driving home with you. So... <laughs> And I don't know, I feel weird when you tell the God of the universe, the omnipresent God of the universe, who is everywhere at all times, and you say, Lord, we invite you in. We invite you here. Really? Really? That always irked me. Anyways, we'll move on. Okay. <laughs> yes. Anyways. And maybe I'm exegeting wrong when I do that, but it hurts me. Okay. All right, what was step one? Step two? Read it in context. Step three, carefully choose a translation and understand what it is. So I'm going to give you some thoughts on translation choices and um, let you know what these different translations are doing. So you can kind of make an educated assessment of what translation you want to read. Uh, if you're going to study like a student or scholar, then you'll want what we call a formal equivalence translation. A formal equivalence translation. They're trying their best to bring the actual word-for-word -word Hebrew into the English or the actual word-for-word -word Greek into the English. So they may violate grammar rules because Hebrew and Greek do not go subject, verb, direct object, indirect object, like English does. They will put either one of those four first in the sentence. They'll lead with an indirect object if they want to. They, they put whatever is the most important part of the sentence, whatever they're emphasizing, that's what goes at the beginning of their sentences. So it could be very awkward English. So when these translations translate into English, it could read very awkwardly, but you know what's being emphasized. You know what, 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 what was really on the author's heart in that, in that verse. So formal equivalence translations are King James Version, New King James Version, New American Standard Bible and ASB, and the English Standard Version. Those are your best if you're going to study scholarly on these things. Mm -hmm. What was the last one? Uh, well, King James, New King James, New American Standard Bible, that's the NASB, and the ESV, which is the English Standard Version. Okay. The second type of translation is the functional equivalence translation. So it's not formal equivalence, this is functional equivalence translation. This attempts to keep the meaning of the Hebrew or Greek while putting words or terms into what will be a normal way of saying these things in English. So it's going to reverse the order of the words a little bit, get into a little bit simpler of English. Um, this will be the New American Bible, or the NAB, the New Jerusalem Bible, which is the NJB, the um, NRSV, the New Revived Standard Version, and then your NIV, and then they have what's called today's new, a new international version of the TNIV. These are trying to combine, trying to get right in the middle of the formal and the functional equivalents. Okay, right in the very middle of the formal and functional equivalents. 
And the third type is called free translations. And right now you're thinking, wow, I could afford that. That's not what it means. It's not, you still got to pay money for them. But they just freely translate. These, these I don't have an appetite for them, but they're, they're, I think they're good for, for uh, young kids. Or if you just want to, you're saying, I don't want anything scholarly. I just, just give me the thoughts behind it. We call this a thought for thought translation. They don't go word for word. It's just like, taking a thought and giving it in a different language. Um, uh, the definition, it's more of a thought-for-thought thought translation than it is being concerned about the words or grammar of the original language. It attempts to eliminate the historical distance of the text. It's trying to say, we don't want to talk to you in 2,000-year-old sentences. We're going to try to make it much more modern. So uh, they just give the, um, the, the thought behind the text rather than any kind of word-for-word -word, uh, following. This would be the New English Bible, or the NEB, the Living Bible, or the TLB, and the Message Bible, our free translations. All right, so what's number one? I got five different answers for that. Five different answers for that. What's step number one? There we go. <laughs> Still got five. <laughs> step number two. And step number three. All right, that's much better. Step number four. Understand the genre that you're in. The Bible's made up of several different genres of literature. If you take a parable and you think it's historical narrative, you are going to err greatly in your understanding. Um, I think most of you get this because would everybody admit they've sinned? Okay. Well, Jesus said if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it far from you. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off and throw it far from you. And none of you have done that. None of you. So hopefully it's not disobedience. Hopefully you're getting the gist of the genre that that is in. Hyperbolic language, extreme exaggeration. We're hoping that's how we intended it. So um, it's important to know the genre. So here's some some genres for you to be aware of. In, in, here's a broad scope of them. Then I'm going to give kind of a narrower scope and talk about this narrower scope a little bit. But you will come across, of course, historical narrative. And there's a wonderful way in Hebrew of knowing what's historical narrative. And I know you're not reading the Old Testament in Hebrew, but I want you to know that this style of writing exists because when an author is trying to let you know, I'm writing historically here, this is actual happenings of history. And there, there's a style of writing called the Vav consecutive, which uh, a Vav is, is one of their letters, and it's also the word and. And they, if you notice how long some sentences can be in these narratives, they go on and on and on. In the Hebrew, it's a Vav consecutive. It'll say, and Moses did this, and he did this, and he did this, and he did this, and, he, and you're like, take a breath. Use a period every now and again, you know, and it'll help. But no, it's their way of saying this is historical narrative. And why that's important is because creation accounts in historical narrative, things that people want to question the reality of it. Noah's floods in historical narrative. Jonah and the whales in historical narrative. All these things that people question historically, the, the Hebrew is saying, we're not telling parables here. We're not giving allegories. We're not giving myths. This is our history. Okay, so, so it's important to, to know that. So there's historical narrative. There is legal prescriptions, okay, things that you're just told to do, Ten Commandments, things like that. There, of course, is poetry. Will it be a book of poetry? Song of Solomon, Psalms. If you're reading, Job is very, very poetic. Um, if you're reading through Isaiah, a lot of times you see full paragraphs, and then all of a sudden it'll go on for a page or two where instead of the margins being this wide, they'll be this wide, and, and it'll be smaller. It's letting you know it just switched to poetry. Okay? So in the Hebrew, it, it's actually gotten to poetry. And my Hebrew professor gave me a wonderful, wonderful quote about the poetry of Isaiah. He said, the poetry of Isaiah makes Shakespeare look like a kindergartner. Okay? So there's some wonderful, wonderful poetry. It's not roses or red violets or blue stuff. They didn't rhyme words, they rhymed ideas uh, together and so forth. 
All right, so understand the genre here. There's uh, historical narrative, poetry, legal prescriptions, prophecies you're well aware of. There are psalms that you're aware well of, proverbs. There's parables. Parable is different from an analogy in that when Jesus tells a parable, he's trying to get one, maybe two points across. So you can't take every part of a parable and go, well, this is what this is like, and this is what this is That's what an analogy does. Okay? He's not giving analogies, he's giving parables. So there's one major meaning that's coming out of the parable. In fact, um, everybody tries to take the rich man and Lazarus and, and get all these ideas about heaven and hell out of them. Jesus is not trying to teach about heaven and hell through that parable. He's trying to teach that the word of God is where you get your faith. If they don't believe this, they won't believe even if somebody rose from the dead. That's the point of the parable. And we try to go, well, hell must be like this because look at where the rich man is and heaven's like this because look at where Lazarus is and there's great cat. He's not teaching that. Okay, If, if you're given an analogy, then you could connect all those points. But parables have one, maybe two major points about them. Epistles, of course, who's a great epistle writer in our Bible? Apostle Paul and apocalyptic literature, and of course, uh, Matthew 24 is highly apocalyptic in nature, and of course, there's a book called The Apocalypse or Revelation. All right, uh, now the, the four areas I want to focus in, in, in on is historical narrative, uh, poetry, which for this case I'm going to call lyric literature, tragic literature, and believe it or not, comic, biblical literature, okay? Now, historical, we talked about a little bit, historical narrative, the Vav consecutive, um, it's, it's, it's how they tell their stories. Genesis is a book I'll give you as a great example of the historical narrative. You can, there's, of course, many uh, historical narrative books in the Bible, Genesis, will serve as our primary ones for, for your to reflect on. Uh, lyric, uh, this is the poetry, Song of Solomon, the most famous book would be Psalms uh, in this genre. And of course, as I said, sometimes you'll see poetry or lyric literature intermixed with historical narrative like Isaiah does. Okay. Then there's tragic literature. Tragic literatures are stories that start high and end very low. Okay. And there's only one book that I can think of that fits this really well, and it's Judges. Judges ends with a verse, in those days Israel had no king, everybody did what was right in his own eyes. And that's a wonderful verse to teach relative truth on, because it says everybody did what was right. Could you ask for anything more than that? Everybody did what's right? Then it says in their own eyes. And doesn't that tell you it's a disaster in Israel? Nobody would think that things are going well for the Israelites with that verse. That tells you it's an absolute disaster because you cannot live by relative truth, period. All right, I ended up preaching when I, tonight's not the night for that. But anyways, so tragic literature starts high, ends low. Now, comic literature, we got to get off of this idea of comedy being ha ha ha, that was so funny. True comedy is stories that start low and end high. Okay, there's surprise good endings to them. Uh, and so forth. So can anybody think of a really comic, comic book, a really comic book of the Bible? Job. Job. How many people would have said, that's tragic? Why didn't he use that for tragic? It's comic. It ends wonderfully. Surprisingly wonderfully. What? Esther. Listen, you're going to, there's 60 something of them. So we can go on. But how about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? How do they end? He's not here. He's risen. Surprise, good ending, right? Gospels. Okay? Comic literature. Now, I picked those four genres because they match the seasons of the year. So now I'm going to really test you. Okay? So what season would you apply to what genre and why? So how do stories start? Once upon a time, correct? So beginnings. So what, what season is the season of beginnings? Spring. Spring. So so spring is attached to historical narrative. Um, what do you think lyric could be attached to? It's a time of joy and celebrating and 
and, and yeah, it's summer. And if you notice, lyric literature uses tons of garden imagery. You read through Song, uh, Song of Solomon, it's, it, everything's about the garden. It's a place of delight and joy. It's time of summer. Everything's uh, grown and, and full bloom. And so it's um, uh, lyric literature is summer. Uh, what would the tragic season be? Think about this now. Starts high, ends low is tragic. Fall. Starts in summer, doesn't it? Starts high, and then everything dies at the end of fall, and so it ends low, which makes winter comic. Everything's dead when it starts, and everything's coming to life when it ends. So it's the comic season. Okay? Make sense? All right. Okay, now I'm afraid to do this after the last time I tried it. What's number one? <laughs> the last time I heard that much babble, God separated all the people. Right. What's number one? Commit to reading your Bible. What's number two? Read for context. What's three? What's number four? Understand the genre in number five. Understand the content, not the context this time. Understand the content. Okay, so um, commentaries are great for this. So are surveys. Get a New Testament survey or an Old Testament survey. To understand the content, you got to get the background of the book that you're in. You got to get some ideas of some of the words that you're going to hear, like. Uh, when, when Jesus tells a parable of a guy who's going to pay a denarius a day. You got to well, what's a denarius? Is that serious? Because then you're going to get another parable where it's given in talents, and know the difference between a denarius and a talent tells a lot about the parable what Jesus is trying to get at. So to get a good commentary, to get good uh, a good lexicon which gives you definitions of a lot of these Bible words, uh, to get New Testament or Old Testament surveys which often goes into the historical content of the of the where they are what years they are talking about major people that are involved some of these good ones will tell you other historical figures that are not in the bible that are around at the same time and so forth kind of puts a lot of the pieces in place for you so understand the the content know what a denarius a shekel what's a sabbath day journey things like that okay so understanding the meanings of these words and, and, the, and, the, and the content so, uh, yeah, okay, so understand the contents, number five. Number six, use scripture to interpret scripture. Use scripture to interpret scripture. Um, here's what I did with Luke 7. Luke 7 was a very confusing passage to me for a long time. And then, I don't know how many times I was told to use scripture to interpret scripture, and I tried it, and I go, look what this thing is saying. It gave me a whole new meaning, so let me share that a little bit uh, with you. Uh, Luke 7, uh, I'll start in verse 31. Uh, Jesus says in verse 31, And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We mourned for you, but you didn't weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking wine, and you said he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. You say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by all her children. Um, actually, I need to back up a little bit on this. I need to back up to, um, this is when John the Baptist is thrown in prison. Are you familiar with that? Okay. John the Baptist is thrown in prison. He doesn't understand why Jesus, his cousin, the Savior of the world, won't get him out of jail. So he sends two of his disciples to Jesus to say, can you imagine this question? Ask him if he's the coming one, or should we wait for somebody else? Why? Because his circumstances aren't measuring up to what he thought walking with Christ would look like. That ever happened to you? Okay. So, um, so, so, so Jesus uh, tells those messengers, Look at all the people I just healed. Go tell them what you've heard and seen. And go report to John that. And then when they leave, Jesus talks to the multitudes about John. This is verse 24. He says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? 
Or would you be glad to see a man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, that of those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So he gives this lesson about John's circumstances and the kingdom of God. And then verse 29 says, And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, having not having been baptized by him. So now, what in the world does this mean? What does it mean that tax collectors justified God because they were baptized by John? And the Pharisees and the lawyers reject the will of God for themselves because they were not baptized by John. Well, now, how do you come to a conclusion about this? How do you let Scripture interpret Scripture? Well, the first, I started by saying, ask questions of the text, correct? So my question was, what is it about the baptism of John that allowed the Pharisees to not get it and the tax collectors and sinners to get it? Well, it says the tax collectors were baptized by John. So I went and looked at John's baptism. I looked at him crying out in the wilderness. I looked at him uh uh, 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 when he was baptizing people, he says, I baptize you unto repentance. So then I started looking at repentance. And who may ascend the hill of the Lord? But he who has clean hands and a pure heart. How do you get to that condition? Repentance. What does repentance allow you to do with that clean hands and a pure heart? Understand the things of God. The tax collectors repented. They went into the Jordan River and said, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. And they come out of that water and now they understand the things of God and they're justifying God in this passage here. And the Pharisees and the tax or the Pharisees and the lawyers that showed up at the Jordan and John said, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. And he tells them the ax is already at the tree and if you're not found to be fruitful, then that tree is going to fall and you're going to be, you're good for nothing but to be burned. Okay, because they don't get it. Repentance, repentance, repent. We got to talk more about the need for repentance. All of this studying the Bible, Luke 7 says, if you're not repentant of your sin, you're not going to get it. That's what it says, doesn't it? Let scripture interpret scripture. Be bound by what the scriptures say about the scriptures. Um, Yeah, so use scripture to interpret, interpret scripture. That's number six. Number seven, do word studies. Put words into a Bible program. Uh, look them up in lexicons. See where else these words appear and how they are used in the, in the different contexts. They can help you discover things like this. If you've been under my teachings before, you've seen me compare sayings. When I see sayings that are exactly like, I go, man, I've heard that saying before. Where did I hear it? I find it in the Bible. I compare and things start unpacking. Things come to life. Here's just a quick two or so, two or three. Luke one thirty five. Angel says to Mary, you're going to have a kid. She goes, how can this be? I've never known a man. And the angel's answer is uh, that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And what's going to happen to her when that happens? Christ will be born in her, correct? Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you will receive, oh, in Luke, Luke 1, I just caught this today, as a matter of fact, when I was looking at this, the angel answered Mary and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power will overshadow you. The power of the Most High himself will overshadow you. Acts 1.8, Jesus says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Same words, power for, for, for Mary, the power of the Most High will overshadow her, and Christ will be born in her. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So what happens when you get baptized with the Holy Spirit? Christ is birthed in you, like it was Mary, for power. Okay? This is getting results in your, in your life that you know you're incapable of. Isn't that a cool way to live? You, got, you get these results, and people are like, wow, look what you did. You go, 
Yeah, and then what are you supposed to do with that? What me? It's him. Okay, that's that's the power of the Holy Spirit uh, coming upon you. All right. Um, Isaiah 45. This one is fairly recent for me, just a matter of months. I was going through Isaiah. I actually took a class on Isaiah. It was marvelous, marvelous class. And we're going through verse by verse through Isaiah, and I couldn't believe what I was reading in 45. Um, many times in Isaiah 45, you will see this phrase repeated over and over by God. I am the Lord and there is no other. It's pretty clear, right? I'm the Lord, there is no other. Not in the past, not presently, not in the future. Agreed? He's the Lord, there is no other. Um, multiple times, he'll say, I am the Lord, there is no other. There is none besides me. And then in verse 22 of Isaiah 45, it says, Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. You getting it? I, and then he says, 23, I have sworn by myself. That always makes me giggle. Why? Because who else is he going to swear by? Right? He puts his hand on a Bible. He says, so help me me. Right? <laughs> I have sworn by myself. The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. What is this oath that he's taking? What is he swearing here? I'm God. There is no other. I'm taking an oath. And here's the oath. That to me, every knee will bow. And every tongue take an oath or confess. Let's go to Philippians 2. It's one of the great early hymns of the church. Starting in verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, who would do that? Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God said this in Isaiah 45. I'm God, there is no other. And here's what I swear to you, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue take an oath. Here's Paul's confession. The name of Jesus, that oath will come to fruition because it will be to him that the knee will bow. People say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Say, so do you read Isaiah 45? It's to God who is, he is God and there is no other. And every knee will bow to that one and only God. And Paul says, it's Jesus. Every knee will bow to Jesus. Seeing the connection? Is that an important connection to see? Listen, why, how do you get those? You look at similar words and phrases. Can't get it from the, uh, can't get it from the Message Bible and Bibles like that, can you? The thought for thought is going to give you no clue that these connections are made. The closer you get to formal equivalent translations, the more you'll see these word-for-word -word connections going on. All right. Um, I'll finish with this one. So eBay the fruit, and every headache you ever got, every time you stub your toe, and the fact that you got to die is all because of that, correct? What did she do? The very words scripture gives us is she took the fruit, she ate it, she gave it to her husband who was with her. That's the curse of sin and death. Jesus comes along and says, though you die, you shall live. And how does he go about doing that? He will hold up a loaf of bread and say, this is my body. And word for word, the Bible will say he took it, he ate it, and he gave it to his apostles who were with him. He's completely undoing the curse of death by imitating the very exact actions of Eve that brought death. How do you see that? You see that through understanding the words of the Bible, uh, looking at these connections. Uh, they happen often, um, and they tell you a lot. Um, Exodus 25, God says this to Moses, 
He says, build the tabernacle exactly according to the pattern that I tell you. And one of the specific instructions about the Ark of the Covenant that he gives, word for word, is put two angels on top of it, one at the head, one at the feet of the Ark of the Covenant. And those angels that are on this lid of the Ark of the Covenant are looking down at the lid of the Ark of the Covenant where the high priest will sprinkle the, lamp, the uh, blood of the lamb in between these two angels and those two angels serve as the two witnesses. So now we're going back to the two witnesses again on the importance of all that. The angels are serving as two witnesses. That blood has been shed for the forgiveness of sins. And uh, that picture, God says, build that exactly according to the pattern that I tell you. And word for word, he says, two angels, one at the head, one at the feet of the Ark of the Covenant. John 20, Mary looks in the tomb. And word for word, she sees two angels in white sitting, one at the head one at the feet of where the body of Jesus had been laying. What does that try to point you to? Mary in Jesus's tomb is looking at the new Ark of the Covenant. And what did John and Peter see in between those two angels? They saw the bloody clothes, grave clothes of Jesus Christ. In between the two angels, one at the head, one at the feet of where the body of Jesus had been lying. His tomb has become the Ark of the Covenant. Um, the tomb was the most defiled place in Israel for a Jew filled with dead men's bones. Jesus made it the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is kept. The most, who's, who's observing this? The most defiled woman of the New Testament, Mary Magdalene with the seven demons until she met Jesus. And now what did she become? There's only one person who ever saw what she saw, and that was the high priest of Israel. He's the only one who could see the, the Ark of the Covenant as he shed the Lamb's blood in between the two angels anybody else would die back there. So she has become the representative of the priesthood of the believer because she witnesses that and she doesn't die. Peter will write about that when he writes First Peter. And he'll say, we have all become a royal priesthood. And I believe he had Mary in mind what she saw and didn't die. This is why we study. These are things that you cannot get by memorizing verses. I'm not saying you shouldn't memorize verses. I'm saying don't snorkel when the Bible calls you to scuba dive. Put on the tanks and go deep. Don't be at the service, surface. Um, uh, gosh, this went longer than I thought it would. Um, as far as the word study goes, this one gets me in trouble, so you know I like sharing that. But it's the most important thing. This is, listen, how many of you know D.A. Carson? Besides Paul. Yeah. <laughs> D.A. Carson is a wonderful, wonderful uh, scholar. He wrote a book called Exegetical Fallacies. I was about to teach from the uh, pulpit one night about the very thing I'm about to tell you. And somebody goes, probably shouldn't do that. Read D.A. Carson's book on exegetical fallacies. And I read it. I go, I can't believe D.A. Carson thinks what I'm about to say is wrong. I can't. And, and this is years ago. This is 2011. So it's eight years ago. And... I hate saying this when this is like being recorded or whatnot, but I, I think he's wrong. Um, one of the most beautiful teachings I've ever come across is based on understanding the Greek words in John 21. This is the uh, this is Peter. This is Jesus restoring Peter. The three I love Jews, right? Can I tell you the truth? This passage always bothered me because I didn't like how it made Jesus look or sound. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter, do you love me? And it says Peter was grieved because Jesus said the third time, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. I couldn't get out of my mind Jesus looking like an insecure teenage girl, okay? Um, and Peter being upset over the insecurity of Christ. Literally says it grieved him that he was asked that three times. And the only teaching we can ever dig out of that is he denied him three times. Now he says, I love you three times. It's all good. It's so much deeper and more beautiful. If you look at the words that are used in the passage for love, there's two different Greek words being used. D.A. Carson says, don't make anything of it, but I will let you decide for yourself in John 21. So as you know, Peter is following Jesus. When Jesus gets arrested, he stops at this charcoal fire. He's warming his hands. And that's when the, the little girl says, you were with him. That was the third denial. He called down curses from heaven, says, I do not know that man. It was right over that charcoal fire. Roosters crowed. 
had to be the most eerie sound in his ears that he's ever heard in his life, piercing his heart, causing him to run away weeping uh, bitterly. Um, John 21 shows up. Jesus is risen from the dead. He shows up on the beach when Peter's out there fishing. They recognize that it's the Lord. They come in. They get this miraculous catch of 153 fish. They pull it onto the shore. And guess what Jesus had made for them as they come on the shore? Nothing less than the exact words of John 18, the charcoal fire, the place of Peter's denials. Jesus makes, John 18 said he did it over a charcoal fire. John 21, Jesus makes a charcoal fire on the beach. Says that the sun was just coming up. So what sound is clearly in the air as the sun is rising? Roosters are crowing. How do you think Peter does every morning when the roosters crow? That's the sound of my failure, right? And he's not going to get all the roosters to move or to get laryngitis. He's going to deal with that sound for the rest of his life and it'll always remind him of his biggest failure. Not a good way to go about living your life, right? But what does Jesus do? He waits till the roosters are crowing. He builds a charcoal fire. He recreates Peter's two biggest nightmares. And then he, and it says there's seven of them around this fire, seven plus Jesus. And of all, all seven, he looks right at Peter and says, Simon, son of John. And I think Peter's got to be going, you know what? I've caught the clues. The rooster's crow and the charcoal fire have caught the clues, but Jesus is seemed cool about it. But now he's calling me out very formally, Simon, son of John. And he says, do you agape me? Which we consider the highest form of, of love. Do you agape me? And he says, more than these. And I love the debate. Is he talking, pointing at the 153 fish or at the apostles? And I don't think God's standard for your love for him being love me more than fish. I think he's looking at the others because what's Peter's track record for the last three years? Lord, even if they all deny you, I never will. Right? He's always claiming to have an agape love for Jesus greater than them. So now Jesus calls him out on it. He says, Simon, son of John, do you agape me more than these? And for the first time that since we met Peter, we see him humble says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. Lower love, brotherly love, not I would die for you type of love. Because I think the other apostles were looking at him like, yeah, Peter, do you? It's hard to hear you over the rooster's crown, Peter. Do you love him more than we do? Um, then it says, and Jesus said, feed my lambs. And Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, you got to know his heart. You got to walk in his shoes for a minute. Just how his heart's got to be pounding that he just went through that. Now he's being asked again. Simon, son of John, do you agape me? He's got to be thinking, Lord, why are you doing this to me? This doesn't even look like your character in the last three years. You have adulterous women throw at your feet. They walk away forgiven. Here, I make this mistake and you're recreating the fire. And the roosters are crowing and now you're bringing up my worst nightmare and calling me to account in front of all my friends. What are you doing? He says, do you agape me? says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He still won't say the word agape. He says, feed my lambs. And here's where the key is to me that there is something here that shouldn't be missed. It says, then Jesus said to him the third time, not a third time, the third time. This time is different than the other two. And Jesus, Simon, son of John, and I, I think any one of us would have ran off that beach at that moment. It's that I don't know why you're being so cruel. I don't know why you're bringing it up. But if you don't want to part with me, I don't want to part with you. And I think a lot of us would have left. He said, Simon, son of John, Jesus said, do you phileo me? How important that you know the difference. You don't get it in English, do you? This is just a third love. It says, do you phileo me? And that's why it says Peter was grieved because the Lord said the third time, do you phileo me? It breaks his heart that Jesus lowers the standard, <coughs> crushes him. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I phileo you. And this is the tremendous humility of Peter, saying I will not brag about something that I can't back up like I did before. Now, it's not the three I love you's that reinstate him. It's now, after that, where Jesus says, Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself went wherever you want. In other words, when you're younger, you were full of Peter. Peter's all that mattered to you. But when you grow old, somebody else will dress you and bring you where you do not want to go and the Bible says that Jesus said that, indicating by what death Peter will glorify God. What kind of death do you stretch out your hands? Crucifixion. Did Jesus nail it? Church history tells us he was crucified. Yes, it does. Okay. Now, Jesus said in John 15, there is no greater love man has than this, that he does what? 
laying down his life for his friends, he says, Peter, now that you're humble, you, you, now you truly agape me. You couldn't do it through your pride and being braggadocious. I had to break you. Now just think about where you're at with God and how your heart is towards him. If he's going to get you to where you're in right relation with him, he will have to break you. It's how a potter starts over again with his clay. If it hardens, you got to break it. And then it molds you into what you were always intended to be. And that's what he did with Peter. What book immediately follows John 21? Book of Acts. You ever see Peter in Acts? He ain't the same guy, is he? It's powerful. Powerful, wonderful guy. Because Jesus broke him and rebuilt him. Now listen, that's what a word study can do. If you never look up the word love, you just go, I don't understand why Jesus asked three times. Is it really as simple as you denied me three, now you're going to say I love you three times? That's kind of like, say this many Hail Marys, right? You're good. Okay? It's so much deeper. I have taught this at, at addiction houses for both men and women, and I've never seen these men and women move more when they hear that God wants to redeem not just your soul, but every detail of your life. Because how is Peter going to respond to Rooster's Crow in the next morning? He's not going to say it's the sound of my failure. He'll say that's the sound of my redemption. That reminds me of Jesus redeeming me and restoring me. And it's going to bring him joy, isn't it? Okay? You can't get it unless you look into the words of the Bible. And that's why I don't understand as much respect I could be a person. I don't understand why that's not there for him. But anyways, um, really, really quick. I'm keeping you way, way too long. Um, listen, uh, know the difference between a descriptive passage and a prescriptive passage. Descriptive passages are just telling the story, but you can't use them prescriptively. In other words, you'll hear some people say, you'll go read about David and go, now go be a David. And somebody goes, okay, you're going to go find me a Bathsheba. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay? So you can't just use descriptive passages prescriptively. Um, prescriptive passages are the Ten Commandments. They're prescribing behavior. Sermon on the Mount, prescribing behavior. Don't use descriptive uh, pre passages that way. And I'll finish with, uh, I was trying to find a great way to finish, and I think I found one, because all I want to do is quote Paul. But as far as James 1 says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, right? So never mind that you sat here and heard it. The question is, what do you do when you walk out the door? Okay? Just like when um, Joseph was in prison and they had the cupbearer and the baker in their dreams, the baker that was going to get his head taken off in three days, the bread was on his head, remember? What happened to the bread on his head? The birds came and took it, right? That's the devil. Okay? Teaching teenagers, teaching anybody. Sometimes it goes so great in the room and then you walk out the door and you look at the people, how they behave, and you go, didn't we just meet with the Lord? Didn't we just go through his word? And now look, look at Facebook, look what's going on. These people that sat here like that, listen, don't let the birds get at the word. Okay, don't, this is your bread from heaven. Don't let the birds at it. So be doers of the word, not hearers only. Um, so Colossians chapter three, we'll finish with this uh, wonderful words from Paul. He says, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule your heart. What's ruling your heart right now? To which also you are called in one body. And be thankful. Be thankful. I deal with a lot of kids with a lot of anxiety. And one of the best things I ever help them to do is to start being thankful for things. It helps in numerous ways. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Teaching. Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen? Amen. 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 By the way, the um, 
next six words are wise to meant to your husbands. Anyways. <laughs> Just in case you want to read further. Just kidding. All right. So, all right. Okay. So, um, listen. Just start over number one. Commit yourself to this thing. Very, very important. Commit yourself to this thing. I promise you, for our account, will be better if Christians, that people that call themselves Christians, has committed themselves more to the Word. We are a Christian community that's largely biblically illiterate. And uh, as far as you go, have that stop with you. Amen? Yeah. Father, thank you uh, for this group. And thank you for uh, your Word. Lord, thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and all the riches spiritually that brings us, Lord. May we never, Lord, uh, look at a cross without being moved in our hearts for your tremendous love for us. May we never read your word, Lord, just to get through a chapter, just to get it done, but to encounter you, Lord God, in rich and meaningful ways that move us towards being better like Peter became better. So, Lord, have your way with all of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.